Oh, good morning, Redemption Church. Can I tell you, I am amped up on Sudafed, Dayquil, and the Holy Ghost. Woo, man, I got some kind of crazy cold, not COVID, but I got a cold, and so I'm chasing it and everything else, and so I'm really excited for today. We're going to find out what's going to get said. So really quick, it is Super Bowl Sunday. How many are pulling for Philly today? How many are pulling for KC today? How many are pulling for just carbo-loading your favorite beverage and just gaining three pounds? I'm that team too. So, uh, yes, yeah, so actually, I'm pulling for Philly. Go Birds. My daughter's boyfriend is a big Philly fan, so I'm pulling for that. It's going to be fun. But listen, more than it being Super Bowl Sunday, today for us as a church is Communion Sunday as well. So if you're watching online, you might get your elements pulled to the side because we're going to do that as a church. And I love it because it is a commemoration. It is a co-celebration of our co-union with Christ and one another and how in that Christ is really what bonds us together. And it's really even in light of that that I love the fact that today is not only communion, but it's the start of a new series that is deeply kind of connected to all of that. And it's a series that we have titled, Divided We Stand which is very provocative, right? Because you're like, no, it's united we stand. I'm like, no, it's divided we stand. It's meant to be provocative, but it's going to be provocative in ways that you don't fully realize. And and as we kind of go through today and we go through the next series of months, that'll unpack a little bit more. And so what we're going to do is we're going to deep dive into some of the deepest themes of the Christian experience, all of which are going to be found in first, second, and yes, Third John. So these little letters that we find in the uh, tail end of our New Testament, we're going to be kind of mining those for a while. But I want to be clear from the get-go as far as what the intention is behind this. Because what I am not terribly interested in doing is merely informing all of us about the data points of John's letters. If anything, what my hope, my prayer, my desire is, is that we would be transformed by the God who resides behind the words that John pens. Because in my world, I've done a lot of Bible studies. And Bible studies are cool, Bible studies are fun, they're interesting, but more than studying the Bible, what I want us to do is I want us to pour over these words so that these words can pour into our lives and shape us, not just to look Christian or religious or rule-keeping, but shape us to look like Jesus in a broken, messy, hurting world, because that's what the world needs. More than a bunch of rule keepers, it needs people that look like Jesus and sound like Jesus and love like Jesus and feel like Jesus in broken lives. That's the mission. And so that's our heart in going into this series and trying to spend some time uh, really understanding what John has for us as he reflects on the person of Jesus. And so with all of that said, I want to just remind you, we do have an app, and there's notes in there, and, and the notes serve a lot of function, but I, I think one of the things that's helpful, I know, especially in our day and age, it's very hard sometimes to sit and listen to a lecture where there isn't like 17 commercials and lights and smoke and flashing and everything else, and so the notes help us just kind of track along for those who may struggle with that, or for those who just want to reflect on these things later, so it's really great. Our regroup, some of them go through our Sunday morning messages and use this information, so all of that is a tool for you. And so just want to remind you of that. And also with that, uh, I want us to pray right now. I want us to just settle our hearts and minds, get ready for what God has for us today as we try to speed through an introduction 
to all of this, and, and then from that uh, to really go, oh, this is what I'm meant to do and how I'm meant to live. So let's go ahead and pray together right now, and we'll get right to it. Jesus, I thank you that in your love you came in this world, and in your love you displayed what love and truth and life really looks like. You showed us what it means to truly know the living God, and I pray that as we're going through John's message, that that is our end goal. It's not simply to, again, be more informed, have good doctrine, have an understanding of what we perceive to be these biblical exegetical truths, but more deeply that we would know you, that we would sense the world as you sense it, that we would engage it as you engaged it, and that we would be difference makers at the deepest levels possible. And so help us to do that. Help us to live like you, love like you, and really uh, learn from you. So we look to you today to do that in our lives. We ask in humility, we ask in eagerness, and we ask for, again, just an empowerment of your spirit to do these things. And so, Jesus, we thank you in your good and perfect name. Amen. All right, so to understand 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, we kind of have to understand that it is a part of a broader kind of theme. In fact, if anything, I think we have to understand that God's message, God's story, this unfolding arc uh, is a little bit like a mosaic, right? And, and, and therefore, each of the works of the Bible are like a piece, a shard in that mosaic, which if we don't understand the mosaic, it's sometimes hard to understand how each particular shard is contributing to the story, and so to understand 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, to understand the heart of this particular individual, I think we have to start high orbit. We have to start with the whole big story, which if you're taking notes this morning, is the first point in your notes. It is the story of God. We need to understand that big story. Now, now part of that story I can't tell because the story of God's an eternal story. Eternity past, eternity future. I don't have like all of the notes for eternity past. It's above my pay grade. So we're going to start where our story intersects with God's story, and that is his creation. It starts in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, where God sets out to build the world that we understand. Now, in our modern sensibilities, kind of post-enlightenment, we always look at these particular chapters and we're like, oh, how was the material world made? And we see debates between creationists and evolutionists and young earth creationists and old earth creationists, and they all like to debate the passage. And, and yet I look at Genesis and I go, this is not trying to answer our questions today. Not really. It was written thousands of years ago to the Israelites leaving Egypt, going toward the promised land, and God's not so concerned with making sure they understand the material creation as much as function. How God is unique and different from the gods of Egypt. And they created in certain ways, and they did certain things with certain motives. That's the way they understood things, and now God is rolling in to re-educate the people. And in that story, what you really want to understand about what happens in Genesis 1 with the creation is that God loves this word separate or divide. And he's doing this series of things. And what he's really fundamentally doing is he's uh, creating order out of chaos. He's bringing light to darkness. If anything, you might even look at that and say he's bringing predictability from instability. So seasons and mornings and evenings and everything else, all of that's designed to kind of teach the people of Israel like, oh, God made this world to be inhabited and to be cultivated, and he's got a mission for us in relationship to that. So it's grounding them in this idea of, hey, be separated, be different, and in this, I'm calling you to cultivate and create in this world that I've made because that's the way I started it. 
So when we go back and look then at Genesis, we see that this is captured iconically in the image of Eden. And in Eden, what we see is where the story of God starts. And the story of God starts in the garden of God, where there he has placed the people of God who bear the image of God, who are on a mission from God, and in this they have fellowship with God. That's the anchor of all of that story. And in this, the relationship they have with God empowers all of their activity, right? So God says, I want to write a story, and I've made people to be in my story, and I've made them to communicate my story so that it unfolds as this really beautiful, amazing, incredible type of story. From this, we see this mission is established and God tells the man and the woman, I want you to multiply, fill, subdue, rule, tend, keep. All of those words stacked up in those first few chapters. What they communicate is that God is a creator who creates creators in his image so that they can go forth and bear that image by continuing to create. See, what I think is important about how we understand the, the buildup of those first couple of chapters is I think we sometimes go, God made the world and at the end of this first week of creation, he's like, it's perfect, it's complete, it's finished. And if Adam and Eve never sinned, the whole world will just be a garden with fruit and nudity forever. Like it would just be without end. But that's not what God says. In saying fill, subdue, tend, keep, there's this idea that says, you know what? I've made you to create, so go do it. This is like a start of a thing, but you as human beings in my image with a relationship with me, you go and you innovate. You create. You build a world from this world. This is what God's intention was. And so it starts as a garden in Genesis 1 and 2. But the mission, I firmly believe, is that it's to grow into a place that's eventually a city with a garden, not just with one tree of life, but with multiple trees of life, and not just four intersecting rivers, but one great river that comes from the city, that that's all of God's plan, that's the way it was meant to be, that's where Adam and Eve and their ancestors were to take this creation, and they were to do it in relationship and fellowship with God, connected to him in deep unity. Now what we also know is that there was a giant wrinkle in the story, and the people there in Eden, they abandoned their relationship to God, their union with him. And yet God is faithful both to his plan and to his people, even in their rebellion and rejection and not wanting him. He still wants them. And so God still continues with the plan. The trajectory is still to move from a garden with one tree to a city with many trees that are healing for the nations, it says in Revelation. And so where we live right now, where the story finds itself is the in-between, right? So we're in between Genesis 3 and Revelation 20. And that in-between has been weaving its way through history. So it weaves its way through the Old Testament. It weaves its way to the New Testament. It weaves its way to us today. And somewhere in the future, it's going to finally come to a conclusion. And we'll cross over into Revelation 21 and 22, right? That's the story. And during this in-between, we sense a divide. We're kind of forced to realize that there's only two ways to live in light of the divide. You either live kind of with God, or you live without God. 
And then this, it's either living in love or living indifference, which indifference is worse than hate. Hate still has emotion. Indifference is, I don't care. Right? So it's to live either in life or to live in death, to live in truth or to live in error. And so we have to land, or, or almost you can't help but land on one side of the divide or the other side during the in-between. And so we work through this. We try to understand this. And we see that this is what God has sort of been unfolding and producing as time has rolled forward. Now, this journey in the Old Testament, uh, the divide, was meant to be sort of captured in this medium of land and law and lineage. This was Israel, right? They were to have a distinct land with a distinct law to unfold a distinct lineage. That was the whole purpose. And when you read the story, when you get to like Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, and certainly Leviticus has some of the stuff in there too, what you see is that God's telling the nation, be separated, be divided, be different. That's how you're going to stand and stand out. And he uses the same words from back in Genesis chapter 1, where he divides day from night, land from sea, sky above from water below, all that divide, 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 or separate. It's just illustratively, Israel, I want you to be different. Because this is how we're going to change the world. They were to be different in beautiful ways, in flourishing ways, in life-giving ways. And then from that, they were to go to the nations and bless the nations. That's what God told Abraham he wants to do. That's what the nation was set up for. And repeatedly, the nation failed. Worships other gods, does its own thing, gets greedy with its money, cares about itself, doesn't love its neighbors, doesn't welcome the foreigner, the stranger, whatever it is. All of that happens. And so as a nation, they become crippled, oppressed. And, and, and by the time we start to come into the New Testament, they're trying to figure out their religious center in new ways. Right? Trying to figure out how do we reconnect with God and how do we please God. That's where they're at. And it's kind of moving into that space, moving from the Old Testament era to the New Testament era, we come across a very unassuming character. And it's where the story of God then intersects with the story of a man named John. Now John, his name means God has been gracious. And his father's name, Zebedee, which means gift of God, but he has a brother named James who means supplanter. It's like, so what's your brother like? Oh, he tears stuff out by the roots and just puts something else in its place. He's just a supplanter guy. And so they get a reputation. They're known as the sons of thunder, which I think says something probably about their disposition and their character. When we read about the life of John, we see that he speaks before he thinks. And I love that because I do the same thing. Man after my own heart right there, right? He's a fisherman by trade, which was not a common occupation in the region because there's not a ton of water. There's a Sea of Galilee, easier to fish. There's a Mediterranean, harder to fish. A lot of people were agrarian, but some people that like to work doubly hard decided to become fishermen. It's day and night, never ends. You can't just stop fishing for a week and get fed. So it's mending nets, casting nets, mending nets, casting nets. Busy, busy life, right? But all of that is then in this time where the people are occupied. That's where he lives, in an occupied Palestine. So Rome has taken control. They rule over the people. Certainly for John and his brother James, they're sick and tired of taxation. It's always just beating them down. They can never get ahead. And so there's opinions that are going to be held by the people of the region. They don't like Rome. 
So they debate then, how do we get back to a place where we're no longer occupied and oppressed? And so then they're trying to figure out how does religion inform the problem that they have politically? And so from this, religion has different solutions. There's some that are religious, that they say the key is to be more syncretistic. That's a fancy word for saying uh, religion needs to cozy up with Rome. Religion needs to partner with Rome, and while we may not have full control, we'll have some control, and that'll be helpful. And so some in the religious establishment, like the Sadducees, right, they're like, no, nah, man, Rome's our friend. We're going to partner with them. We're going to get stuff done, and that's, that's good enough. But then there were others and they're like, man, you can't cozy up with Rome. They're the bad guy. They're the enemy. They're pagan. They don't honor God. And so we need to become more strict with the law. We need to get back to the Old Testament code because if we do that, Deuteronomy promises God will bless us. And if he blesses us, it means he'll topple Rome and give us what we want. That was the Essenes or the Pharisees. That was their vision. Well, the majority of people kind of sided with that second group. They were more in line with the Pharisees and the Essenes of, yeah, we need to be more pure to be freed by God from Rome. And John would have been more a part of that collective. He's a blue-collar guy. He's sick of taxation. He's fed up with Rome. That's certainly going to be his spirit. And so he would favor retaliation. He would favor revolution. He would think liberty comes through law-keeping, and we need to get back to that. We just got to be right with our Old Testament roots and our Old Testament God, right? But most of his day was still filled up with fishing, day and night, mending, casting, everything else, but wishing, hoping, man, that Rome gets its own and Israel is freed. They just need a Messiah to come do that. And then one day, we see a Messiah comes strolling along, and in that, there is this intersection of the story of God with John. This is where they coalesce together, right? And so here comes this character. His name's Jesus, kind of new to the scene. And he comes strolling down the beach, and he's got two interns in tow, Andrew and Simon, right? And, and they're going to learn from this Jesus character. And then Jesus stops and sees James and John. And he's like, listen, you two hooligans, drop your nets. Come with me. We're going to do some stuff. Let's roll. And they do, which teaches us in part that Jesus had already had some relationship with all of these characters. It wasn't like he just shows up and says, hey, quit your day job. Leave your dad. Come with me. And they're like, great. Don't even know who this guy is, but we're going to split. No, John chapter 1 even seems to show that he had a building relationship with these people over the course of time, and then one day says, all right, we're going to go do a thing. What I love about this is here's this guy, this unremarkable fisherman, that honestly would have not have been even a blip on the radar of human history if it wasn't for this event. And yet this guy that's kind of a nobody from relatively nowhere by all global standard— he is brought into a relationship with Jesus and he becomes a part of the inner circle, the deep inner circle of Jesus. So there's the 12, right? But then Jesus was always grabbing Peter, James, and John to do interesting, different stuff. So he is exposed to like a moment when Jesus raises a child from the dead and he goes with Jesus onto the Mount of Transfiguration where he is transformed and he goes with Jesus to pray when Jesus is in deep anguish and he blows it in that space and falls asleep. But he's still in that intricate, deep core circle. 
We see in the story that he seems to be one of the only one of the 12 who returns to where Jesus is at at the cross and he comforts Jesus' mother there. He was so dear to Jesus that Jesus literally called him the beloved learner or the beloved disciple. It's this particular individual who's not only among the 12 apostles for all time, but pens multiple works of the New Testament. And so he moves from obscurity to eternal notoriety, right? As the one who walked with God, who lived out the mission of God, and then penned the continuing story of God. That takes us to number four in your notes, the story of God from John, right? John's going to pull from what he knows. Now, what I love about this is uh, what John would have anticipated about the story, like before he meets Jesus, and then what he experiences in light of Jesus are radically different things. Again, what would John have wanted in the Messiah expected? A military, conquering, judgmental Messiah who is going to punish Rome and elevate God's people. That's what he would expect and want. He wants a David-like figure who comes and just crushes, cracks skulls, throat punches people. Like, that's his guy. And then he is introduced to Jesus, right? Not the Messiah he wanted, but certainly the Messiah the world needed. Not one that would dole out condemnation and wrath, but one who would dispense light and beauty and truth. And so John is introduced to this person who literally takes all the ideals and flips them upside down and turns them backwards. Right? Where, where they're used to, uh, everything is, is might and sword and conquering. And now Jesus is like, oh man, here's the thing we're going to do. It's so different. We're going to love our enemies. We're going to turn the other cheek, go the extra mile. If somebody sues us for this one thing, we're going to give them two. Right? So it looks so weak. It looks so feeble. Right? But that's the place Jesus is going to go. He's like, we're going to rebuild the world anew as God intends it to be. And here's the way we're going to do it. I'm sure for John at first, he's like, what are we talking about? I'm mad about taxation. Now you're saying pay taxes to Caesar and give to God what's good. What? But that's where Jesus is going to take this man because that's how global transformation is going to come. Not through conflict and warfare and occupation. No, through this otherworldly option where you dispense love to a fractured and broken world. See, it's from this experience that John has in his life that radically transforms him that he then, years later, writes. And he writes, first off, a gospel. John's gospel, which means good news, right? And he just writes about this narrative, about the life and mission of Jesus and everything Jesus did. And, and what's cool about John is he, like, does his own thing. Right? So you have Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they all kind of are like, oh, man, what did you write? I'm going to write that too. I'm going to borrow from that. And they're kind of using each other's stuff a little bit, and they're like mixing it around, and John's like, hey, fellas, I'm going to do my own thing over here. And so John looks very different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But in this, I also look at John, and I believe he is writing to us from his passion. He, he's he's kind of revealing to us uh, what most marked him and struck him as he walked with Jesus. 
And so as he writes his gospel, he really has this idea of God showing love and life and truth to and for the in-between world as revealed in Jesus. That's the essence, right? That he kind of pings down to these ideas. And so even in this, um, it's, it's a radical work because it describes how God came near in the person of Jesus, how in this God loves and serves the world through the person of Jesus, then more radically, how this same God hands himself over to his creation, lets his creation abuse him, hate him, reject him, and crucify him, and how that same God, instead of that day retaliating with the final, I have tried and tried and tried, I'm sick of it, I'm going to toast you all, instead of that, the same God on the cross says, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He says, when I am lifted up in hatred, these people who hate me, I will draw all people to myself, he says in John 12. So in their hate, I will show love. In their disdain, I will show grace. In their hostility, I will issue forgiveness. That is powerful. That is the Jesus that John walked with, witnessed, and now writes about, right? A God who absorbs the hatred and in its place dispenses his love. See, that whole idea, that concept will be an anchor that John returns to time and again. It becomes the centering point of his theology, the cross, what the cross is doing, and not simply in a theological way, but in a storyteller's way, what it teaches us and how we are to live as well. So that's his gospel. Well, he writes this gospel. It seems that it starts to get dispersed among the Christians of his day, but it also raises some questions. There's some ways that they're trying to figure out how to apply it. There's things in John's gospel that are, that are kind of like illustrative and kind of confusing in the illustrative fashion that it's told. And so he then puts together a follow-up. And the follow-up is kind of like a commentary or a very condensed version of the core themes of his gospel. And that condensed version we call... 1 John, or John's first letter, or John's first epistle. And, and here's the thing about this I want to be clear about. Uh, the purpose John seems to have in this first epistle is to capture the essence of the greatest commandment. That's to love God and love people in light of who Jesus is, to love people and God as Jesus loved God and people. Like, that's the essence of 1 John. But it's not really quite a letter, See, in their world, a letter started off by, uh, hi, guys, it's John. I wanted to talk to you about some stuff. And then it would conclude with, hey, everybody, I miss you, love you. And again, keep loving Jesus kind of thing. John doesn't do that in 1 John. There's no introduction. There's no greeting. There's no salutation. There's no thank you, anything like that. It just jumps right into the topics. Consider 1 John the first blog ever in history. It's kind of that. It's very universal. It doesn't have a particular group that it's addressed to. It's just out there for the masses to read. That's 1 John. But it captures this essence of life and real-world contexts. From that, we see that there's 2 John and 3 John. And these are kind of now the ideas applied. 2 John is like, hey, here's how you love God applied. And 3 John is here's how you love people Applied, And there's names and circumstances and real-world conditions that he writes in. And I love this because what it captures is uh, both are written to messy contexts. 
And I love the fact that what John realizes is, hey, here's God's revealed heart for a messy world. And when those things come together, it's a messy kind of condition. Because we don't live life in a lab, do we? It's not controlled and measured and the air quality is just set perfect and the temperature's perfect. That's not life. Life is lived in a community and communities are messy. They have variables that are unpredictable. And so John is trying to write to how we live in community. And when I say community, I mean multiple variations of the community. So it's community between us and God, community between believers, community with make-believers, community with unbelievers. All of that is in 1 John and kind of bleeds into 2 and 3 John. And so he writes to this, and inside of this, there are then themes that are dear to him that he wants us to know. And so that takes us to number five in your notes. The themes of Jesus that resonated with John. And I use that word resonated on purpose, all right? Because um, here's what I don't tend to do when I'm reading any section of the Bible. I don't go, whoever wrote this is just like an AI bot that is just a middle person between God and the page, and they're unencumbered, disentangled from what they're writing, as though they're just dictation specialists. No, the, the way we understand this in, in kind of biblical studies is God is working in the person, he's moving the person, the Spirit is guiding the person, but it's also the person that is spilling onto the page things that matter to them. So Matthew writes things that matter to him. And that's why he sounds very different than Luke, who writes things that matter to him. And it's why they both sound different than John. And John is like, man, this is what gets me up in the morning. This is what excites me. This is what moves me. This is what transforms me. Jesus said these things. I'm going to push these things because these things, man, this shaped my faith. And that's the way we want to read like the Gospel of John, the letters of John. Here's a man possessed by ideas that have radically changed his life, and he wants them to radically change our lives as well. And so he writes to themes. Some of the themes are words like love or life or truth. He talks about sin and death. He talks about life he talks about the word no a lot, and we're going to see this in a minute. Now, these aren't the only themes. He talks a lot about light, which is kind of connected to truth. We'll get into that later in the series. But, but these are the ideas that stirs his life, that lets him suffer with joy because he's been so transformed by these thoughts. So let's break these out really fast. We're not going to spend a lot of time, but I just want to kind of understand these words a little bit and see how they have some relationship to one another. And so I want to start first with the word love and the word truth. Uh, you can see on the screen, it comes up a lot in his works, right? These are, again, anchor points in his thesis, right? And, and here's the thing about love and truth. Um, in our world, especially in our Christian world, what is really tragic is we take these two great words and we sort of pit them against one another because they're hard to hold both equally. And so there's some environments when they look at the two words, they go, well, you know what? Love is greater than truth. And so we need to make sure we love more than we worry about the truth, right? And so it's kind of this focus. And then there's others going, no, 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 no. You don't know what real love is unless you have truth. And so truth is greater than love. 
I remember um, years ago, I took our team over to Spokane to some of the churches that I had trained in and had connection to and everything else. And I remember we sat down with the leadership of one particular church uh, where I was an intern and first was a pastor, and we were talking about whatever. And then we said, well, next we're going to this other church called Life Center. And they go, oh, you mean Love Center. And we're like, well, okay. Please expound. And they're like, oh man, they're all about love. They're all fluffy. They're all feel good. It's all willy-nilly and everything else. He goes, you know, they're all about love there. We preach the truth here. To which I instantly thought, no, you don't. Because if you take love and that becomes a vilification word for another body of believers, you don't quite understand the truth. Right? Because they're not pitted against one another. I, I know what they're trying to say, but again, I was in that environment. I knew that church, and I saw how many times they slayed people in truth with no sense of love. And Paul's like, clanging symbol. Right? If, if, if you think you have all the truth, but you don't have love, you have nothing. And so what we really need to understand about this is that it's not love versus truth or truth versus love. It's that love informs truth. And truth infuses love. They should never be pitted against one another, right? We should love the truth, and we should care about the truth of love. All of this fits in tandem. So this word truth, it isn't just one thing. Like, oh, truth is information. It's doctrine. It's a data point. It is in part, but truth is also honesty and integrity and sincerity all of this is going to be in part what John is thinking about with truth and so much more. And then when it comes to love, well, love is also about sincerity and it's about affection. But it's also about commitment and sacrifice. All of this is in there. And so you can't say, I have one more than the other or whatever else. Like John would be like, you're crazy, man. You're absolutely crazy. More deeply, when it comes to love and truth, where John would probably look at all of us and go, ah, oh, you're so Western and post-enlightenment, is that here's what we tend to do. Love is a word and has a definition. And truth is a word and has a definition. And then what's the Greek definition of this Greek word? We get really all nerdy with this. And then John would be like, oh, man, you know, I, I'm sorry. I meant to tell you, actually, the fact I did tell you that, that truth is a person. And love is a person. He tells us this. Jesus says what? I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then John rolls in later, and he's like, oh, let me tell you about God. God is love. Right? So, so when we read this, we don't want to be all Western, enlightenment, exegetically minded, and we forget that John's like, man, I'm telling you guys about a person. He's truth, he's love, he's light. And that's what I want you to know. So, so this is going to be his passion, and we're going to want to coax that out, right? It's about a person. Now, what's the problem that we have? Well, the problem is something else that he writes about thematically, sin and death. He says, ah, oh, that gets in the way of the person thing. So he writes a lot about that. But again, when John is writing about sin and death, he's not like, okay, this is just the, some prepositional problem. It's a forensic issue. He's not like that. He's like, no, th this is a practical plight. Sin and death gets in the way of flourishing. God made a world to flourish. We had sin and death, which brings decay. He wanted Israel to bring flourishing again. They failed, so now he builds a church to bring flourishing anew. 
in the power of the Spirit through the person of Christ. That's the mission here. So he has to deal with the problem of sin and death because it robs us, and it robs us of another prominent theme that John loves, life. He wants us to understand life, and John writes a ton about life. In his gospel, 43 times. In his letter, 12 times. Now, as a church, we say life is better with Jesus, right? And part of that is, again, my own mission statement. When I came back around to my faith again, that was what I realized. Life is better with Jesus. But it's not just, oh, that's another sentimental thing. No, when you read the gospel of John, he can't shut up about this idea of life. He just keeps bringing it up. And he brings it up in all sorts of ways. And in part, he says, man, it's all about eternal life. But here's our problem. When we see that word eternal life, we go, oh, after we die, eternal life. And he's like, what are you talking about? Like, the only way to enjoy eternal life is to die first? No, he says, hey, man, eternal life begins the day you start a life with Christ. Then it's eternal, right? So you have to start to realize that in this life is part of that eternal stretch. And so he wants us to have life in this life as well as life beyond this life. That's the story of God. He's restoring and reconciling and rejuvenating this world. What's John three sixteen and 17? For God so loved the world, not the future world. For God so loved this current world in the in-between, in its brokenness, in its hardness and pain and plight. All, he so loved it, he gave his son. Right? So whoever believes would not perish, but have life, everlasting life, starting today and going forever. That's his heart. And then it goes on to say, hey man, God is not interested in sending Jesus to condemn the world, but rather that the world would be saved through him. That's God's heart. So he loves life. Even Jesus says in John 10, 10, I came to give you life, give it to you abundantly. The enemy wants to kill, steal, and destroy. I, I want you to have something different, right? So this is a major theme. And so how is life imparted in Christ? Forgiveness, Right? So this is another one of John's themes. He doesn't use this word very often, but boy, he communicates the idea a lot. That this is what God is in the business of doing. He loves to forgive. He loves to reconcile. He loves to see the, the plan on track for every person. More deeply in John's themes, it's the cross of Christ that's that instrument that Jesus takes on death so he might give us life. That's how the forgiveness comes. Again, when I'm lifted up on a cross, he says, I will draw all people to myself. Like, this is his heart. I'm bringing them in, man. I'm bringing them in. Because I want them to have life. I want them to escape the pains of death. And so, divided, we stand. In light of the cross, right? We stand in love and life and truth and forgiveness and we stand apart from indifference and death and error and sin. See, for John, these themes, right, of love and forgiveness and truth, it's like the spiritual DNA that makes life life. It's like the double helix where it's all in there. And he's like, this is what Jesus came to do. But he didn't just do it for the sake of the themes of love and truth and forgiveness and life. No, he did it for the ultimate deepest theme that he cares about. Jesus prays about this in John chapter 17, verse 3. It's at the end of his life. It's his big prayer. He goes before God. And in this, he makes this statement. He says, this is the way to have eternal life, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, the one you sent to earth. 
And then later, John unpacks this in his letter. He says, we know that the Son of God has come, and he has given us understanding so that we can know the true God. And now we, have, we live in fellowship with the true God because we live in fellowship with the Son, Jesus Christ. He is the only true God, and he is eternal life. I love this because this is John's biggest theme of all, right? And his point is, hey, it's not what you know, it's who you know. If we think, hey, what God wants from me is just accurate doctrinal concepts, and that's good enough, John, Jesus, the Bible itself, like, you're missing the point. The point isn't your accuracy. It's your affinity for the God that you can know. And so for John, know is core. 96 times in his gospel, 32 times in his letters. See, this drives him. Love, truth, forgiveness, life. All of that equals knowing God for John. And that's the objective, right? Not knowing more data points, not knowing more information, not knowing all the laws, rules, what? God. He wants us to know God. He wants it to be where God's affections are our affections, God's priorities are our priorities, God's heart is our heart. That the, the very essence of the heart of God is laid in the souls of people to go and live this out to the world around this. And so he writes this to a messy people living in a messy world so we can be transformed to bring love and truth and beauty and forgiveness and all these things to others' messy lives. And so weirdly enough, that leads to the final point, and it's the very tone in which John writes. I call this, number six in your notes, John's churning Christian experience in knowing God. The way John writes his first letter here in particular is very churning. Here's what I mean by this. Um, if you look at Paul, for example, he's very logical, he's very linear, he's very ordered. He's the Neil deGrasse Tyson of the Bible. So it's like point one, one A, one B, one C, point two, A, B, C, three, A, B, that's how Paul likes to write. John, on the other hand, here's the best example I can come up with. John is like Jeff Goldblum, <laughs> right? So John's like, yes, yes, let's talk about love. Let's talk about love for a minute. But also truth, let's talk about truth over it. Let's go back to love. Let's talk about life. Life, truth, though, truth would be great. Let's talk about love again. Oh, let's talk about light for a minute. Like, he's just all over the map, right? When you read it, he just keeps recycling, repeating. It's like, it's like a vegetable stew and broth that's just boiling and churning and moving. And that is his heart, right? That's the graphic that we put together today. Matt was very graphic happy this week, apparently. But, but it just captures the fact that, you know what, believing, yes, it's objective, but it's also subjective, and loving, it's objective, but it's also subjective, and all of it turns and knowing God and then spitting this back out again to the world around us, and it just keeps boiling and moving, and that's how John writes to us. It's messy truth to bring beauty out toward messy lives because that results in people understanding that Jesus came to truly give us abundant life. Right now, if you would bow your heads with me. We're going to take communion here in a second, but before we do, I, I want to give a challenge. There may be some with us this morning online or here in the room, and, and you're hearing about Jesus, and he came to bring life, and you go, man, my life doesn't feel like living fully alive. I need this Jesus to give me life fully alive. If that's where your heart is today, Man, for you, it means going to God, just quietly to yourself, prayerfully in your mind, and saying, Jesus, 
I know you came to give life. I need your life. I know that sin and death are getting in the way. I need your forgiveness. I know your cross was the way that you loved me when I didn't even know about you, or maybe I didn't love you, or maybe I didn't follow you, but today I want to do that. If you are in that space today, you simply pray, God, take me, forgive me, touch my life, I want to follow you. And he brings you into the family, he brings you into the fold. Now after this, you're going to see a slide on the screen that has a number, or if you have our app, there's a tile. We would love to know that you made that your prayer and your decision today. You can just text us or hit that tile and let us know, hey, I decided to follow Jesus. That'd be awesome. Also, if you made that your prayer today, today is your first communion meal that you can take because this is for those who follow Jesus and say, Jesus, I'm commemorating your life, death, resurrection for me because we all do this together to remember what Jesus has done for us. And so this is your day to do that as well. So Jesus, we thank you. We certainly need you. I thank you that today is the day that we get to remember what you have done for us so that we remember what it is you call us to do in you. May we be faithful conveyors of love and life and truth and forgiveness and ultimately union, friendship, and fellowship with you. We thank you, Jesus, and praise you in your good name. Amen.